Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 50 for the first half of September 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is lunatic earthquakes, or whether earthquakes are triggered by lunar tides. The idea or main claim for this case is that there are a handful of people who state very emphatically that earthquakes can be predicted based on where Earth's moon is in its orbit. On its face, this seems like it could make sense. After all, the moon causes tides and it stabilizes our obliquity, and so it does have a noticeable effect on many, many things, so why not earthquakes too? Similarly, if it were true, It would seem like it should be obvious, and so along with the claim, there is oftentimes a vast conspiracy proposed by its proponents. Now, there are a lot of ways that I can talk about this topic, and I've written it in a way that I think flows best, but it may seem disjoint a few times. I'm also going to talk about statistics to some extent. Yeah, more math. And I've prepared a document that I've linked to in the show notes with the data, sources, and statistics and graphs that I'll be referring to, although it may take a day for it to get up. Now first, I'm going to talk about a lot of background information so that we're all hopefully on the same page with this. I'll get into some very specific predictions and prediction windows later on, but throughout this background information, it's important to keep in mind that proponents of this idea will often use prediction windows for earthquakes, saying that it's going to happen within about a one-week time span. Sometimes their window is a little bit longer, around 10 days in length instead. The next brief bit of background information is about how frequently earthquakes occur and what magnitude means. Earthquake magnitude is a measurement of how much energy is released during the quake. As with many scales in science, it's a logarithmic scale, meaning that each increase in the linear number is an exponential increase in energy. So take a magnitude 1 earthquake. That's equivalent to about 500 grams or 1 pound of TNT, and it's considered to be a microquake. Magnitude 1 earthquakes happen continuously. When you reach magnitude 2 earthquakes, It's considered a minor earthquake, not micro, but minor, and usually people can't feel them. Over one million of these happen per year. Magnitude 3 earthquakes are still considered to be minor. You usually feel them if you're really close to the epicenter, but they very rarely cause any damage. An estimated 130,000 of these happen every year, or about 15 per hour or one every four minutes. It's equivalent to about 15 kilograms of TNT in energy. Magnitude 4 earthquakes are equivalent to about 15 metric tons of TNT. Remember, magnitude 3 was 15 kilograms, magnitude 4 is 15 metric tons of TNT. These are considered to be light earthquakes. You'll hear shaking of indoor items, but rarely is there any significant kind of damage. About 13,000 of these happen per year, or about one every 45 minutes or so. This is also the kind of quake that some earthquake predictors will claim to start to predict, ones that happen about 36 times per day. When you reach magnitude 5 quakes, instead of 15 tons of TNT, a 4.0, a 5.0 is about 480 tons of TNT of energy. 
As I said, this is a logarithmic scale in energy. A 5.0 is considered a moderate earthquake, and it can cause major damage to weak buildings, but usually only slight damage to buildings that are well designed. An average of about 1,319 or 1,319 of these happen every year, or about 25 per week, one every roughly 7 hours. Magnitude 6 earthquakes are considered strong, and they can be destructive across populated areas within about 100 miles or 150 kilometers of the epicenter. And epicenter is the center of where the earthquake happens. It's where it actually happened. The magnitude 6 earthquakes are equivalent to about 15 kilotons of TNT, and around 135 of these happen per year, or about one every 65 hours, 2.6 per week. So, if I say that I predict a 6.0 earthquake is going to strike somewhere in the world in the next week, I would actually be under-predicting, because an average of 2.6 happen every week, not 1. By magnitude 7.0, we're talking about major earthquakes that will cause serious damage. Only about 15 of these happen per year, or about 1 every 24 days. Magnitude 8 earthquakes are quakes that will cause damage over several hundred miles or kilometers, it really doesn't matter at this point, releasing the energy of about 15 megatons of TNT. That's 15 million tons of TNT. That's a big earthquake, that's a lot of energy. On average, only about one of these happen per year on Earth. The largest nuclear bomb ever exploded on Earth was the Tsar Bomba, 50 megatons of TNT, that would be the equivalent energy of an 8.35 magnitude earthquake. A 9.0 is stronger than the Krakatoa volcanic eruption in 1883, and it releases the energy of 500 megatons of TNT. These quakes are much more stochastic, and only a few have ever been recorded in history. It's estimated that these happen about one every 1 to 10 years on Earth. A 10.0 quake has never been recorded, and it would release the energy equivalent to about 15 gigatons of TNT. That's 15 billion tons of TNT. It's around the theoretical maximum that you could get for a natural earthquake on Earth, although something like the asteroid impact that created the Chicxulub impact crater thought to have caused the death of the dinosaurs would be about 100 teratons of TNT, equivalent to a 12.55 magnitude earthquake. So what's the point of going through this? The point is to emphasize that even though earthquakes release an enormous amount of energy, they can cause a lot of damage, even from something seemingly minor, like a magnitude 6 quake, and these still happen frequently. If you ever hear someone claim to predict, such as Cal Ori, that, quote, an earthquake will hit Italy in 2011, that prediction is fairly meaningless because magnitude 1 quakes happen all over the world all the time. Similarly, anyone who claims to predict a California earthquake of a 4.0 magnitude or larger should know that 40 of these happen per year, or about once every 9 days, just in California alone. Getting to the lunar background information needed for this episode, the moon orbits Earth roughly once every 28 days, around 4 weeks. 
in reality, the time is 29.531 days, but four weeks is a good enough approximation for this discussion. It has a new phase occurring once during this time, and it has a full phase occurring once during this time. That's because twice during this four-week period, it's aligned with the Earth and the Sun, the new moon being when it's Sun-Moon-Earth, and the full moon being when it's Sun-Earth-Moon. This alignment of three celestial objects in a row is called syzygy, and that's spelled S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. It's a lovely word to say, and it's the word of the day for this podcast. It's during those times that we get particularly strong tides, called spring tides, because of the combined tidal forces from both the sun and the moon. There are also two times during the moon's orbit when the moon appears to be half full, and we call those the first quarter and third quarter moons. That's because they happen one quarter and three quarters of the way through the four-week lunar period. During those times, the sun-earth-moon alignment forms a right angle, and the tides from the sun, which are roughly 45% the strength of the lunar tides, act to suppress the lunar tides, and so the overall tides, the net tides that we experience, are particularly weak. We call those NEAP tides, N-E-A-P. Remember, these phases happen roughly one week apart. One week you'll have the new moon, then just over seven days later you'll have a first quarter moon, just over seven days after that you'll have a full moon, and then just over seven days after that a three quarter moon, and then just over seven days later we have a new moon again. Keep that in mind when you hear what people claim for earthquake prediction windows, as well as what it means for spring and neap tides. And while you keep that in mind, I'll discuss it more in depth later on in the episode. An added complication to this model is that the moon is on an elliptical orbit around the Earth. When it's closest, it's called perigee. When it's farthest, it's called apogee. The suffix g, that's g-e-e, means basically from the Earth. So peri would be close, and apo would be farther away. The way I keep those prefixes straight is that apo starts with a, which means away. It's when it's farthest away, whereas peri starts with p when it is more proximal or closer to the object that you're talking about. So anyway, you have apogee and perigee once during each lunar month. The difference in distance is around 43,000 kilometers, Now, I said that you get one apogee and one perigee each during a lunar month. They're actually not aligned quite that well. The average time between apogee is about 27.6 days, two days less than the time between new moons. The average time between perigee is around 27 days, but it can vary between 24.5 and 29 days with a mode of actually about 28.5 days, and this complicates any simple model that you might want to use. Tides, though, don't scale directly with the apogee and perigee distance. Gravitational force goes as the inverse square of distance, while the tidal force, because it's the differential of gravity experienced on one side of an object versus another, goes as the inverse cube of distance. This means that when the moon is closest to Earth, about 12% closer than apogee, the tidal force is actually 40% more than when it's at apogee. For the sun, the difference is about 11% when we're at perihelion versus aphelion. And again, we're using those peri and apo prefixes 
The suffix, though, this time isn't G, meaning geo or earth, but it's helium, meaning the sun. And so the very, very, very basic model posed by people is that earthquakes happen on the planet. They're not necessarily caused by tidal forces, but if a fault line was about to go, then a strong tide is going to trigger that earthquake to happen. Hence, they claim that when we're near syzygy, when it's either a new or full moon, and when the moon is at perigee, then the combined effects of the closer moon and the added solar tides will trigger more earthquakes. Since it's a tidal thing, other planets' positions really don't factor into this at all. This seems to be like a very testable hypothesis, and it is. And I've downloaded data for over 43,000 earthquakes spanning the past 80 years to test this hypothesis. But before I talk about that, I'm going to talk about a few examples that people claim and some of the conspiracies involved. Geologist Jim Berklin was suspended from a California government geology job when he made a prediction that a major earthquake would occur during the 1989 World Series in the Oakland Bay Area. It hit. The government told him not to make any more predictions. Well, now that he's retired, he publicly states quake windows. Mr. Berklin uses tidal flooding tables based on lunar perigee. That's the time when the moon is closest to the Earth to affect more gravitational pull on the Earth. And there's a regular contributor here on Coast to Coast. Jim Berkland is probably one of the biggest names out there in non-psychic earthquake predictions. He runs a website called Syzygy Job spelled J-O-B instead of J-O-B-E, which actually hasn't been updated in two years, and he is frequently a news guest on Coast to Coast AM. I listened to 10 hours worth of him, just a small fraction of what I have, in preparation for this episode. Jim's method is exactly what I explained in the basic model, so I thought that it would be informative to take a look at some of his past predictions. From his July 1997 newsletter, which is one of the few that he has on his website for free, he wrote the following predictions would take place during a one-week window of July 19th through 26th of 1997. 1. An earthquake of 3.5 to 5.5 magnitude within 140 miles of San Jose, California. 2. A similar event within 140 miles of Los Angeles. 3. A similar event within 140 miles of Seattle. And four, a major quake of seven plus magnitude somewhere, probably within the Pacific Ring of Fire. So how did he do? First, we need to look at the background levels. I don't have data for earthquakes that small in Washington state, so I'm only going to look at San Jose, Los Angeles, and the fourth prediction. Remember, A 3.5 magnitude quake is barely detectable to a normal person. A 140 mile radius is fairly large, and in fact Los Angeles and San Jose are about twice that distance apart, so these circles just overlap each other. San Jose is in the north part of California, and it, on average over the last 80 years, experienced about 8 to 9 of those kinds of earthquakes per year, giving him a 16% chance just based on dumb luck. Los Angeles, near the middle of the state, gets a lot more quakes and experiences about 30 3.5 to 5.5 quakes per year, on average, or about one every 12 days. And so he has a 60% chance just on randomly getting this right. Meanwhile, as I said in the background information, 
a 7 magnitude quake goes off about once every 24 days. So if he's quoting a one-week window, then he has about a 30% chance, just by chance, of being right. Now, as it turned out, during that week-long window in July of 1997, there was a 3.73 magnitude quake 131.2 miles south of San Jose on the 24th of July. There was also a 3.73 magnitude quake about 53 miles east of Los Angeles on the 26th of July. There was not a 7.0 or larger magnitude quake anywhere in the world, the most intense being a 6.3 in the middle of Mexico, not near the Ring of Fire. So, he got an easy hit, a bit of a harder hit, and missed the intermediate probability one. In Coast to Coast episodes, most of the major quakes that he predicts happening actually don't, but he makes light of significant ones in the past that he's predicted. One example is that bio that I started out with. George reads it every single time, an obvious homage to his most famous prediction. But in a 2005 episode, Jim predicted that the March 29th, 2006 total solar eclipse that was visible across Africa and the Middle East would cause an earthquake over the land that the eclipse path was. He said that this happened in 1999, and that it was only six days after a total solar eclipse in Turkey that it experienced an earthquake. So there are actually two claims there, the first being a prediction, the second being an example that he claims from previous events. The prediction ended up not happening. There were three 6.0 or larger magnitude quakes happening within a week of that eclipse, and none were within the eclipse path. Remember, a 6.0 magnitude quake happens on average about once every 2.5 days, so about three times a week. The second claim is that the solar eclipse triggered the Turkey earthquake. The Turkey quake of 1999 was a 7.4 magnitude quake, but it did happen, as Jim said, only six days after the solar eclipse. In other words, on August 17th, 1999, during the first quarter moon, just two days before the moon was the farthest point from Earth. In other words, the exact opposite of when it should have happened based upon Jim's model. But he makes it seem like a hit because he says, well, it occurred within a week of that solar eclipse. Well, yes, it did. But remember, the moon travels around Earth, and a week later, it was actually causing the lowest tides of that lunar month. But... Jim somehow counts that as a hit. There are many, many more examples of Jim's failed or overly broad predictions, but at this point I think that some side discussions are in order. First is the correlation does not apply causation fallacy. All because one example or even a few examples that you might have of a prediction that came true based upon your model, that does not mean that your model is correct. The two events could be correlated but you need to examine a lot of data and do more studies to determine if the correlation actually is due to causation. Which brings us to something that skeptics encounter all the time when looking at predictions, whether claimed to come from psychics or some other method, remembering the hits and forgetting the misses. Jim had a good hit in 1989. That's not really debatable. But he's been riding on that pretty much ever since, 
and he's made high-probability predictions since that time and gone out on a limb on a few others. The low-probability predictions are often missed because they're low-probability, and this stuff does happen by chance. But he never talks about those after the fact. But if he ever gets a low-probability hit again, you will never hear the end of it. Now, if one were to point this out to these kinds of people, a likely reaction would be to accuse you of being in on a conspiracy. You know, there's been a hundred-year litany of uh, negativism that has come out of uh, USGS over the last century. Mm-hmm. The uh, the earthquake prediction is impossible. Crowd have done a you know a remarkable job of 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 uh, uh, sidecasting this uh, matter into the dustpan of history. Uh, uh, dozens and dozens of eminent seismologists from 1850 on have uh, put the same message that I've. Uh, uh, that I'm writing about in my books before the public and, and, and had it uh, quietly shunted off into, uh, into oblivion. So thank goodness I'm not a seismologist or else I'd be giving you the same old uh, negative, you know, litany of negativism. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I have indisputable rock-solid evidence, a sort of unassailable proof that has allowed me to author two books on the subject and cause science journals in Europe and the United States to grace their publications with my, my opinions. Uh, buttressed by my 15-year tenure as an earthquake preparedness coordinator for the Los Angeles Unified uh, School District. But really, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Byzantine orthodoxy that says that uh, every single uh, uh, brick in the academic brick in the pyramid of science has been laid by eminent professors, it's, it's hogwash. I mean, you can look at the history of, uh, the, history of the world from uh, Copernicus to Columbus and Galileo, or the Wright brothers, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. That was David Naban, or Nabhan, or some Lebanese pronunciation. And while he gets a bit more emotional than Jim Birkeland, it's a good example of the conspiracy that many of these folks revert to. Because their method is so obvious and so foolproof, there must be a vast conspiracy of silence that prevents it from getting out. But they are the lone candle in the dark that gets the word of truth out there. Like, you know, what happened to Galileo. As opposed to a lot of the stuff that I've talked about on this podcast before that deals with conspiracies, this is not a NASA one, but it's blamed on the United States Geologic Survey, or USGS, which in itself is interesting and shows just how fallacious this conspiracy claim is. The USGS wasn't founded until 1879, and yet the alleged conspiracy by it goes farther back by several decades. It's a lot like people who claim that Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in evolution, therefore evolution is false. Well, evolutionary theory wasn't formulated until over 30 years after Jefferson died. But beyond that, it also gives enormous power not only to the USGS to censure scientists before the USGS was even founded, but also the ability to somehow censure scientists from all over the world, over whom the USGS has no apparent power. For example, to believe this conspiracy, one would have to believe that an enterprising geologist in, say, Japan, where they get a heck of a lot of earthquakes, is somehow controlled by the USGS, and that the ancient Japanese as well were somehow also prevented from figuring this out, even before the United States was even a country or known about to peoples of Asia and Europe and Africa. And that brings us to what I'm going to term an argument from not antiquity. The fact that this very, very basic observation of higher tides triggering earthquakes was not 
figured out centuries ago, despite other very basic things related to the Moon-Earth interaction, that's another argument against an obvious link between tides and earthquakes. True, it's not ironclad evidence you can miss obvious things, but if it's so obvious today, and ancient people easily could watch tides and measure the lunar phases and estimate when the moon was bigger or smaller, they should have been able to figure this out, but they didn't. And David Naban, or Navan, is quite kind and provides a host of other logical fallacies that I'd like to mention. After all, one of my favorite segments on SGU is the rare Name That Logical Fallacy, so when I get a chance, I like to point them out. The whole idea that earthquake prediction is impossible, that's got to be ditched right now. It's absurd on the face of it. We've measured the background radiation of the Big Bang from 14, year, 14 billion years ago. That's, that's possible, but lonely little earthquake prediction isn't. We, you know, we've cataloged the whole genome of the human race, three and a half billion combinations. That wasn't impossible. Well, who, who said earthquake prediction was impossible, by the way? Albert Einstein? Isaac Newton? I've looked. I can't find it. A few goofy people at uh, USGS uh, have said it, and then they've latched onto it from, you know, 100 years ago, and that's been the orthodoxy, the Byzantine orthodoxy that we're sluggishly dragging along into the 21st century. How many did you find in that 48-second clip? I found three main ones. First is an argument from personal credulity. Effectively, I believe it, therefore it's absurd not to. I'm not sure if this is a formal logical fallacy, but I'm sticking it in there. And it is the opposite of the argument from personal incredulity, which is a formal logical fallacy. Second is the non-sequitur, meaning doesn't follow. As in, we can measure the cosmic microwave background, we can map the human genome, therefore somehow these have something to do with predicting earthquakes? I mean, one could say, for example, well, we can map the cosmic microwave background radiation, therefore... Why don't we have jetpacks to get us from point A to point B? I mean, it's just one has absolutely nothing to do with the other. It's a non sequitur. The third is the argument from authority. He's trying to say that because Einstein and Newton didn't say that predicting earthquakes was impossible, that it is possible, and the USGS is blocking all of that from coming to light. What he apparently fails to realize is that anyone who figures out how to predict earthquakes has their funding set for life. If scientists who work with the USGS figured it out, they'd get some huge government funding for the next several centuries to implement whatever system they come up with, almost regardless of the cost, and put out bulletins of their predictions to prevent earthquake casualties. It's really kind of something that people don't think through. But that's par for the course with conspiracies. So now we get to the point where we can actually look at the data in this episode. Independent of any one person's prediction window, or one particular prediction, or set of predictions, or retrodictions, and set of predictions and retrodictions, let's look at the data themselves. I downloaded from the Southern California Earthquake Center's website the time, location, and magnitude of over 43,000 earthquakes since 1932. I then modified a JavaScript to output the dates and times of new and full apogee and perigee moons during that time. I then spent many hours, including some time getting help on a statistics forum, 
going through earthquakes, and now is when I share the results. And, as I said, I will have a write-up of this on the website shortly. Remember, the basic idea is that stronger tides trigger earthquakes. You get stronger tides when we're close to the sun, called perihelion, when we're close to the moon, which is called perigee, and when we have syzygy, when it's either a new or a full moon. So one thing that we can look for is whether there's an increased earthquake frequency when we're closest to the sun, and a decreased frequency when we're farther away. We're closest to the sun in January and farthest in July. The data do not show any trend with month, so we can rule that out, despite the solar tides being around 10% stronger in January. But perhaps the sun is just too subtle, so we can just look at the moon's effect and see if there is any. First, I wanted to make sure that my code was working properly, and I wanted to get baseline statistics if everything really were random. So I created 1 million earthquakes that happened at random times over the past 80 years and 8 months. The analysis I then performed was to determine when earthquakes occur relative to perigee moon, apogee moon, new moon, and full moon. I binned the data in different intervals just to make sure that it didn't affect anything, but I settled on intervals of half days for the random trial, which is also called a Monte Carlo simulation. The result was a completely even distribution of times of earthquakes relative to these four kinds of moons out to about 14 days on either side, as one would expect if it were purely random. I then determined the fraction of earthquakes relative to the whole that occurred within both perigee and syzygy, so perigee and new or perigee and full moons. For this, I also looked in multiples of half days. From basic combinatoric probability, you would expect that when you require that an earthquake happen at exactly the time of a new or full moon and the time of a perigee moon, you'll get effectively zero, even from a very large sample because that basically represents one minute over the course of several months or years. You'd also expect that when you require it to happen within one week of both a perigee and a new moon, you'd get roughly a 25% chance of that happening. If you require that it be within one week of a perigee and a full moon, you would also get about a 25% chance of that happening. That's because you have about a 50% chance of an earthquake happening within one week of a new moon, and a 50% chance of an earthquake happening within one week of a full moon. And the chance that perigee happens within one week of a new moon is also about 50%. The chance that it happens within about one week of a full moon is also about 50%. Multiply 0.5 by 0.5, and you get about 0.25, or a 25% chance an earthquake will happen within one week of perigee and a new moon, and a 25% chance that an earthquake will happen within one week of perigee and a full moon. Based on the Monte Carlo simulation with one million earthquakes, the probability ended up being about 24.16 plus or minus 0.17%. The reason that it's not 25% exactly is because the interval between new and full moons changes over the years with a range of about plus or minus half a day, but the time between perigee moons changes by up to four days, depending on everything else going on in the solar system, and so it's also not normally distributed. So you actually can't use basic algebraic statistics to figure this out. You pretty much have to run simulations. Doug C., your wish for more math came true. 
For the rest of you, even though 38% of you know that you can prove anything with statistics, just trust that I did them right, and that my code was working, and that I got a baseline for what the distribution of earthquakes should be, if they were purely random. You can do more complicated tests, I'm sure, but something that my first advisor in grad school told me was that if your complicated statistical test shows something that looks significant, but you don't see that in the actual data and when you do more simple basic tests, you should be skeptical. So it's really the basic tests that I did. After all, these people claim that it's a fairly clear and obvious effect, so it should show up in a very basic statistical test. So I then went to the data. I separated them out into California-only data, for which about half of the earthquake events I had were, and those went down to about magnitude 3.0. I also then separated them out into the whole world earthquake data, which I had complete down to about sixth magnitude, and those comprised about 3,073 earthquakes. What I found was purely random. I could go into the details of each test, and I do or will be in the online little write-up that I'll be preparing within the next day, but for the purposes of this podcast, I seriously found absolutely nothing that was statistically significant out of any of the data, regardless of what I did to it. In the California data, there was actually a slight increase in earthquakes during an apogee moon, the opposite of what these people's models would predict, but it didn't show up in the all-world data. In terms of the most telling analysis, the fraction of events within a 0.5-day interval of both syzygy and perigee, the worldwide earthquake results were completely within one sigma of pure random chance. For the California-only data, there is a bit of above chance for within 3.5 and 4 days of both syzygy and perigee, but it drops to below chance for about 6.5 days and farther. But for the important, non-retrodiction, impressive prediction of the earthquakes happening within, say, 24 hours of both syzygy and perigee, the data showed that this happens only 1% of the time, which is pure chance. Now, I really would love to see the statistical analyses used by some of these people who claim earthquakes are influenced by tides, because I found absolutely nothing. And as I said, the document detailing these will be in the show notes within about a day. The final topic that I want to talk about within this episode is more on statistics, and it's something that I really haven't gone into much before, and that's the non-formal but still real fallacy termed the statistics fallacy. In other words, it's known as a misuse of statistics. A good example of this is this other clip from David, and yes, the 39 minutes that he was on the air was a host of Name That Logical Fallacies. I looked at the history of the great killer quakes that struck in Southern California between Long Beach in 33 and Northridge in 94. And during those 60 year, uh, during that 60 year duration of the 20th century, 23 large magnitude 6.0 quakes or greater struck in Southern California. Now, George, one third, one third of them struck during the astoundingly thin target window represented by the hours of dawn and dusk. Uh huh during new and full moon near syzygy and or perigee. There you go. That is to say, say, a third of the killer quakes in Southern California struck within a time frame that represents about one half of 1% of the total time during those 60 years, with the other two-thirds spread all over the clock, all over the calendar. Now, 
that resounding empirical evidence that the earth has laid squarely in front of anybody with a pair of eyes and an open mind, the math says would require random probabilities of one out of 50 billion for that to have happened randomly. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to get on board with, with, that kind, with those kind of numbers, nor, nor do I believe any thinking person listening would be. There are a couple of things in there to talk about, and this is a common kind of claim in this particular branch of pseudoscience and related ones. One statement that he made is that there were 23 magnitude 6 earthquakes in California between 1933 and 1994. Based on the source I have, the number is actually 38. So either he's using a much narrower range for Southern California, or he's right away cherry-picked his data meaning that he's selecting just data points that he wants to use in order to support his claim, and he's rejecting the others that don't support it. He then says that about one-third of his 23 earthquakes struck between dawn and dusk during a new or full moon that was also at perigee. So I looked at the times and days of those 38 quakes and when they struck, and they were evenly split across all hours with nothing specific about daylight times. Then I looked at the ones that struck within a day of a perigee moon. Of my 38, only 5 did, or 13%, which is about chance. Same thing for within a day of a new or full moon. Only 5 of those 38 struck within a day of a new or full moon. Also about chance. Only 1 out of 38 earthquakes struck within 24 hours of both a new or full moon and when the moon was at perigee. So the fallacy here, first off, is just not understanding his data. But the next one is the outrageous statistics that he gives. He states that a third of the quakes struck within a time frame, and that's only 0.5% of the total time available, which, based on my Monte Carlo simulations, means that he's actually talking about a time period not 24 hours on each side, but only 12 hours on either side of both syzygy and perigee moons. He then says that this was only a 1 in 50 billion chance of happening randomly. If he were correct, if one-third of 23 events happened within that 24-hour window, he's actually talking about a 33-sigma event. And if any of you are statisticians or physicists, you know right away that that's insane. A 33-sigma event would put the odds at much much worse than 1 in 50 billion. In fact, the statistics package that I has can't even calculate how crazy those odds would actually be. I did try a few common statistical mistakes, and I couldn't really figure out where he came up with a number of 1 in 50 billion. But this is something where the number is just so outrageous, it's such an improbable thing, that if he got that value, he would either A, win the Nobel Prize, or B, he should have turned around and said, okay, what did I do wrong? This number seems really kind of small or really big or really weird. What did I do wrong? Where might my analysis have gone incorrect? Maybe I should talk with a professional statistician. Anyway, based on the 1 million random simulations that I did with the actual times for perigee, apogee, full, and new moons, there is a 0.2 27% chance an earthquake happens within 12 hours of either side of syzygy. For a sample size of 23, 
the counting statistics give you an uncertainty of plus or minus 0.76%, meaning that you can realistically expect zero or one earthquakes to occur, which is what I found for Southern California for magnitude 6.0 or larger. I found one earthquake. When the sample size is much, much larger, say for the 43,000 earthquake database worldwide that I have from 1932 to the present time, then you would still have an expectation of only 0.27% chance. But because of the much larger sample size, the expected range is only plus or minus 0.02% from that small chance. A very tight range, but it's what I found out of those 43,000 earthquakes. 110 were from within 12 hours of syzygy, which is about 0.25%. Given its own counting errors, the 110, that's plus or minus 10.5, and so it overlaps very well with the theoretical value of there being absolutely no out-of-the-ordinary statistical significance in that number. And that brings us to the end of the main segment. To recap, because I took you over a range of material over the past 41 and a half minutes or so, the basic idea is that high tides will trigger earthquakes to happen, and people claim vast conspiracies to cover up this apparently obvious correlation. Instead of providing the rock-solid evidence that they claim supports this, what they actually do is commit a host of logical fallacies that everyone should be aware of, including... Non-sequiturs, argument from persecution, argument from authority, argument against authority, argument from personal credulity, misuse of statistics, correlation as causation, remembering the hits while forgetting the misses, and data mining. I've gotten some flack lately from people on my blog about exploring the minutia of a claim and not taking people at their word even for the most basic parts of the claim. The problem is that that's not how things are done. Everything is up to a testing of the evidence. Everything should be subjected to objective analysis. And if someone is scared of their claim being investigated, or they want you to look at something else that they've said instead of the claim that you want to investigate, you have good reason to be skeptical and do your own thorough investigation. Even a basic claim of how many earthquakes have occurred during a given time period I showed was wrong. And so you need to question every claim of information that's made. No new news this week, so moving right on to the Q&A, this episode's question comes from a guy on the blog who I'm just going to go with the first initial of J, because that's easier for my lousy American pronunciation. J asked a follow-up from my episodes on image processing and the Q&A from Belgarath, where I talked about white-balancing photographs taken from the Martian surface. J asked how we actually know what the white balance is supposed to be, what the colors should be if they were on Earth, because stuff should get deposited onto any color card that's used on the craft in order to try to calibrate the colors almost instantaneously. The answer is twofold. One way is that, yes, we do effectively have color calibration cards on the craft, and they can photograph those to figure out what the colors should be. The deposition rate of dust is fairly slow in most parts of Mars. In fact, it's been measured based on how quickly the solar-powered landers will lose power. 
And so early on in the missions, they can use the cards to approximate what the colors would be on Earth. The other method is that there is extensive calibration that goes on on Earth before the craft is ever launched. How the cameras respond, sample photos, and very detailed response of every filter and every detector is done. All of those are well known before the craft is ever launched, and so at a bare minimum, those can be used in order to estimate what the colors would be based on balancing their filter responses from tests on Earth. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest really is just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Feedback related to the last episode topic on the Apophis prophecy. First, a correction. A very, very small correction. I said that the 2002 message about no new information related to Apophis was written by Michael Horn. It actually was not probably written by Michael Horn, but rather probably by Christian Frenner. No biggie, just a name change. In terms of other feedback on that episode, well, I'll just say check out the blog post for the episode. Whenever I talk about Billy Meyer, a lot of people tend to come out of the woodwork, and this is no exception. I was accused of accusing Meyer of being dishonest, a liar, a megalomaniacal egotist, and several other things. While I may or may not personally think those, I definitely did not say those in the episode. And, as expected, Michael Horn himself chimed in. I think one of the best adjectives to use is slippery in order to describe his responses. He still hasn't directly answered whether there is direct, corroborable information explicitly linking the red meteor with Apophis prior to 2004, but he keeps saying to explore the broader picture and the hundreds of other documented statements. Even when those besides myself have put that request out there, he still slips away to other side claims. It really is impressive, and I don't mean that in a good way. Now, to be perfectly fair and perfectly honest, I have blocked a few of the comments where it's just pure insults because of violations of my comment policy, but I have let most of those comments through. And with that said, it's time for the puzzler, where... Usually, hopefully, each episode I do attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question, loosely based upon the material discussed in the main segment. There was no puzzler last time, or the time before, or the time before, but there is this episode. In fact, with the main segment on whether the moon causes earthquakes, there are actually two puzzlers this time. One that's easier, and one that's harder. The first puzzler is that, while the moon causes tides on Earth, there will also be tides on the moon. When are the tides largest on the moon? Are they at the same time that they're largest on Earth? Or is that at a different time? And why? The second puzzler question is, we don't think that Mars has any plate tectonics. Would it experience quakes? And if so, what would cause them? Keep in mind for both of these that there might be more than one answer. Try to figure them out and send in the answers to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss them during the next episode. And that episode will very likely be the fake story of Planet X, Part 4, Nancy Leader. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, 
please send them in. Two announcements this episode. First, in a bit of unfortunate news for those of you who like this podcast, and I assume that if you're listening, you do like it, I need to cut back from four to two episodes per month, at least for September. Real work and other stuff is sapping up too much of my time, and the next several episodes are going to require significantly more research on my part than usual. The second announcement is that I will be in Flagstaff, Arizona, that's USA, later on this month, September 18th through the 23rd. And if anyone is in the area and interested in meeting up, please send me an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. That wraps up this topic for the 50th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website, 2, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, 3, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you liked it, then also tell your friends and family.